I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... The story of the Belgica's journey into the dark Antarctic night with Julian Sancton and his new book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth. Julian Sancton read history at Harvard and writes about culture and travel. His work has appeared in Vanity Fair, Esquire, The New Yorker, Wired, Departures and Playboy, among other publications. He grew up in Paris and New York and has reported from every continent, including Antarctica, which he first visited while researching the book we're going to be talking about today, which is Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. Julian, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Tell us, first of all, where you first heard of this story. I was uh, at my desk uh, at Departures Magazine at the time in, in uh, 2015, and I was flipping through an article in The New Yorker uh, about the way NASA is planning for manned missions to Mars and, and studying the effects of, of isolation and confinement on astronauts, uh, so specifically the, the, the psychological effects. And um, the article sort of backed into the story by beginning with a short summary of this expedition that I'd never heard of called the, the Belgica. NASA has been studying as both a cautionary tale and as an example of how to overcome some of the challenges of far-flung exploration. And that summary, short as it was, it just caught my interest for how gothic it was. It's just the idea of people losing their minds in the polar regions for me brought to mind Edgar Allan Poe and uh, and Coleridge and some of the, the stories by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle or, or uh, Mary Shelley. It was just such an incredible image. And when I read a little more about it and I learned that uh, the interventions of Frederick Cook, the American surgeon on board, were responsible for saving a great number of, of the, the men on the expedition, that struck me as particularly poignant because, uh, as your listeners may or may not know, Frederick Cook is a much maligned figure in the history of exploration. It, it just remembered, if he's remembered at all, as one of America's great fraudsters. He had uh, lied about being the first to reach the North Pole. He had lied about being the first to reach the summit of Denali, the tallest mountain in, in uh, North America. He uh, was imprisoned for running what amounted to a Ponzi scheme, and so uh, spent seven years in federal penitentiary. And so this idea that this this uh, anti-hero of American history would in this case be a genuine hero, I found irresistible. And so 
I immediately, after reading those three, four paragraphs, called my friend in Los Angeles, who's a screenwriter, and I said, this is your next movie. It was so cinematic, and just this, uh, the setting, I, I could immediately see as a, as a movie, and so he was a little bit blasé about it, to be honest. He said, you know, man, in Hollywood, nobody makes anything original anymore. It's all got to be based on IP. It's got to be, if the, maybe if there were a book, uh, then we could, we could talk. And so that got me thinking, well, is there a book? And so I, I looked and I found that though the Belgic has been mentioned in a sentence or two uh, in, in, in other polar stories or at most uh, a chapter in the, in, in the, the a background uh, background chapter in biographies of Roald Amundsen, the famous Norwegian explorer, who happened to have been the first mate on the Belgica, there was not a, a long treatment of the Belgica. And so, uh, you know, I, I wondered why that might be. And I thought perhaps the historical record is poor. Uh, perhaps there's, there's uh, a reason that nobody was able to uh, tell the story properly is because there there wasn't, uh, there weren't enough primary sources. And boy, was I wrong about that. Uh, there were of the uh, 19 men who left South America aboard the Belgica for the Antarctic coast, uh, about a dozen kept some kind of detailed record. And so this was a historian's dream. Yeah, this is the the incredible thing of this story, because, I mean, I must admit, I had not heard of Cook before. I don't know if he's just more famous in America because of the, the latter story, or it's just my ignorance. But obviously, you know, Amundsen is is unequivocally one of the most famous explorers ever, and, and he was involved in this mission. And yeah, so you find this, even more amazing that it's not come out before, that you find this absolute treasure trove of information, of primary sources, of diaries and stuff. Tell me about that stuff, so doing the research with all those diaries and things well the um my first step was figuring out where where cook's archives were and, and you're not alone in not knowing about cook i mean he's he, i don't think anybody who's not a polar obsessive and also uh american would probably uh be expected to to know about him but um his archives are voluminous and they're kept at the the library of congress in washington dc and so that was uh, being able to, to secure those and get and uh, get access to those were that that was step one for me but they had been consulted before this wasn't uh it was as valuable as it was it it wasn't necessarily my proudest get that would have to be the log of the commander of the belgica adrien de gerlache he was a belgian aristocrat a young man at the time who had what was a pretty unusual fixation for the turn of the century which was that he was obsessed with the sea and in belgium there was not much of a maritime tradition to speak of. There was only 40 miles of coastline at the time and a bare bones merchant marine and, and maybe a, a small fishing fleet. But this idea that he would, that Adrien de Jalash, you know, imagine himself as this great seafaring explorer was a uh, kind of, de- I would say not delusional, but certainly extremely optimistic. And um, he heeded the call that uh, after a conference of all the geographical societies of the Western world, in 1895, decided that the utmost priority for exploration was uh, the almost completely unknown Antarctic, he decided that he would be the one to lead a mission there. And so he, he scraped together a, uh, an expedition with what Belgian uh, sailors he could find. They certainly weren't the cream of the crop. They were in, in many ways a notch below pirates and, um, and filled out the ranks with Norwegians and um, Eastern European scientists and the, the American doctor that I mentioned. Um, but so his, he was central to my story. He was one of my three main characters among, uh, alongside Cook and Amundsen. And so to answer your question, 
that was being able to access his log, uh, thanks to his descendants who opened their doors to me very generously. That was the, it was like being given access to the Gutenberg Bible, as far as this story is concerned. Um, so that was, that was wonderful. Um, and, and then I, I, I did research in Oslo as well for the Norwegian side of the story. Um, Ohio has a great uh, polar library and, um, yeah, I traveled to Antwerp uh, for another trove um, uh, by one of the backers of the Belgic expedition that kept a tremendous amount of correspondence. And I lucked into finding uh, a couple of diaries that have never been consulted by other uh, historians, specifically diaries from the crew. And when you're writing these stories, very frequently you'll find that the the officers have more of a voice in these stories because they tend to uh, have more detailed records. Well, so, which is why it was so important for me to, to find uh, these diaries from, from crew members and it allowed me to get into their heads and see what their perspective was. Tell me a bit more about how De Gaulash sells this, mm-hmm. this expedition. Because as you said, he comes from, you know, he comes from a sort of minor aristocratic background in Belgium. Belgium being a country, as you said, it's, you know, it's not really got much of a navy. There's mm-hmm. a hilarious thing when he, he embarks on this career to become, you know, to go up the ranks of the maritime world on other countries' navies. Yeah. But then it basically ends up on what we still have now, which is fundamentally a cross-channel ferry between the UK and Belgium. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So how does he, how does he go about funding it, basically? How does he go about selling it to the, the sort of scientific establishment? It took him a few years, but but indeed, he, he was smart enough to understand that uh, at that time, framing things uh, in a scientific way, framing these expeditions uh, in a scientific context was probably his best course of action. Because at that time, in the 19th century, uh, the explorers were almost as likely to be scientists as to be anything else. And it was often a pretext for exploration, often a pretext for conquest. But certainly, there was a kind of competition among the geographical societies of, of the world and among, among governments to uh, accumulate data, which uh, in the same way that gold or, or other riches had, had been the aim of previous expeditions in previous centuries, data became the, the raw resource that was uh, most valuable and, uh, at the turn of the 19th century. So even though he was not a scientist himself, he was uh, curious enough about it to put together a pretty serious plan for the scientific exploration of Antarctica. So that involved the documentation of the flora, the fauna, almost or very little of which was understood. Um, the geology, the oceanography, and then some, the charting of the coastlines, which uh, save for a few fragmentary segments was almost uh, entirely unknown as well. So uh, th- this was a thorough plan. And at first he uh, had attracted the the support of the entire Belgian scientific contingent. Uh, the, the Royal Belgian Geographical Society was thoroughly on board. But then because they found that he had so much trouble funding the expedition and that it took so much, it took so much time and um, it seemed like the expedition was doomed to never actually take off, uh, he lost their commitments. They, they, uh, they, all back, they all backed out of it. And so he was left trying to put together what he had presented as, as also a nationalist uh, endeavor, as something that would redound to the glory of this young nation and fly its flag across the world and to the, uh, to the bottom of the earth. He was ultimately forced to, by default, make this an international expedition. He found his scientists in, in Eastern Europe. There were two Poles and one, and one Romanian. And uh, he was obliged to, because even though he had a, a couple doctors on board, 
they backed out one after the other. Actually, his father kicked one of them out because he didn't trust him. And uh, the the other ones uh, backed out at the last minute. And so he was left, Dejelash was left, having to embark for the most hostile environment on earth with no doctor. And he was saved by the fact that had, uh, the the engine conked out, you know, right off of the uh, right off of the coast of um, of Holland, and so they had to backtrack and they had to go back to um, to Ostend. And it was then that he he understood the insanity of of leaving for Antarctica without a doctor, and dug up an old telegram that he had up, up until then ignored from uh, our friend Frederick Cook, saying um, offering to join this expedition, and he and given the choice between not uh, having a doctor and having an American doctor, he chose the latter. So uh, that was, and it was uh, one of his few uh, excellent decisions that he did. So that's how Cook ended up on the expedition. How does Amundsen, obviously we know what he goes on to do later on, but at this point in his career, where is he? He is trying to fashion himself into a great polar hero. From an early age, he saw this as, as his destiny. And it's rare to see somebody who is so uh, determined in, in pursuing what he sees as, as his destiny and to just step by step do everything it takes to get there. So at this point, he had already embarked on a few whaling uh, voyages in the Arctic. And he had already uh, done a few grueling overland treks in a uh, hinterlands of of oslo and he had established a bit of a reputation as as this um as this adventurer and uh, as a man of great talent and also he looked he was six foot two and and probably 200 pounds and and uh, a pure muscle and he looked the part of the modern, modern day viking so uh the envoy in uh Sandefjord, norway which is where the Belgica was being refit, forwarded him a um, an application from Amundsen, who um, had heard of, of the this planned expedition to Antarctica. And he had written in the margins, uh, take him, my friend. Uh, the envoy had said that about Amundsen, because it was obvious that this man was was a gem. And so that's that's another one of, of Dijalash's rare good staffing decisions. And the Belgica then, let's talk about the ship for a minute. What was it like? It was a couple decades old at that point. And um, it was a three-mast uh, whale ship, and uh, Dijerlach had refitted it to to have a uh, a, a steam engine and to uh, have a retractable propeller, which he thought was important in order to uh, protect it from the encroachments of the ice. And, and that was actually a smart decision as well. But uh, so it was it was also refitted to. Uh, insulated against the cold by lining the uh, the interior with felt. Of course, that made it an even more intolerable place to be when when they crossed the equator. Because as much as it insulated against the cold, it also made the the uh, in hull and uh, quarters of the ship unbearably hot. It was not the biggest ship, and it was the runt of the Norwegian whaling fleet at the time. But it was also but that also made her, made her pretty nimble. And the fact that she was clad in green heart wood also made her, at least um, it uh, reassured De Jarlash that she would withstand the pressures of the ice. And interestingly enough, she was the sister ship to the Endurance, or rather the model uh, of the Endurance, Shackleton's uh, famous vessel. And uh, the Endurance was initially built, I believe it was called the Polaris at the time. It was initially built for De Jarlash, uh, much later on, and uh, De Jarlash ended up not being able to, to pay for it. And so he recommended it to his friend Ernest Shackleton. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Julian Sancton and we're talking about his book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Nights. And Julian, this is it's obviously the story of a you know a historic event that is out there on the internet or whatever. People could quite easily figure out what happened. Yeah. But the book reads like uh it reads like a thriller. It's an absolute great read. And so therefore I don't want to give too much away as to what actually happens during this interview because you know I want people to to have that experience. But you know suffice to say they go to Antarctica and basically end up stuck in Antarctica. Yeah. Let's talk about the area that they actually get to in and where they end up. What's it like? Well, it's the Bellingshausen Sea, which is, um, I guess, you know, south of, uh, southwest of South America. So they, they, the first two weeks in Antarctica were blissful and, uh, and led to uh, a great scientific bounty. Uh, they were able to uh, collect all sorts of data, all sorts of specimens, and uh, they were. It, it was really wonderful. That they were drunk on the thrill of discovery uh, along a stretch of the Antarctic Peninsula that now bears the name of Commander de Jalash. It's called the the Garilash Strait. And the aim of the expedition, however, was not just to explore the Antarctic Peninsula, but also ideally to reach the South Magnetic Pole, which was of some value to science, but it was also it would be a great exploit to crow about back home. 
but by the time that they were done exploring the Antarctic Peninsula and that the, the uh, weather was starting to turn and the, or rather the season was starting to turn and winter was, was coming, by that time, the expedition was farther behind than they had to be in order to reach a landing party uh, on the shores of Victoria Land. And uh, the plan was to land four people on the shores of Victoria Land who would uh, establish winter quarters. And then uh, the Belgica would go back to Melbourne. And come the spring, then those four people would would, uh, make a dash to the South Magnetic Pole, which had yet to be reached at that point. But uh, this plan was falling apart. Uh, The timing would not, there was no way that they could reach the, the shores of Victoria Land because the winter ice uh, pack ice was was already growing. And in fact, in the area where they happened to be at that time in, in mid-February, it was already well too late uh, for them to even reach the shores there. Uh, and so it was the, the pack was enormous. And so they could they were limited to skirting the edges of the pack in, in hopes of maybe finding a lead inward. But uh, they also knew that that, that, that meant uh, that the ship would risk being stuck fast, which is a, a fate that polar explorers try very hard to avoid, uh, given what happened to such ships as the Jeannette, for example, in, in Alaska, or the, or the Franklin expedition with the Terror and the Erebus in the Canadian Arctic, uh, which were turned into an absolute disaster with uh, the death of more than 130 men. So despite this, Dujarlash thinks, well, I can't reach... I can't reach Victoria Land, and so I'm forced to go back home to Belgium or to report back after after six months of of, of an expedition with nothing to show for it. And so that for him, this was uh, he was afraid not only of the ju- of the judgment of the scientific establishment, but really of the Belgian people and of the press. And this uh, played an outsized role in his outsized role in his decision making. He figured that it would there was an opportunity for him to to change this outcome when a terrible storm fragmented the edge of the pack in the Bellingshausen Sea and opened up avenues to the south. There were leads to the south that presented Dujarlash with an opportunity, he saw, an opportunity to go south and potentially reach a southern record, or at least chart the coastlines in that region. And um, we have to remember this time, it was not even sure whether the Antarctic was a continent, as we now know it to be, or whether it was more like the Arctic, whether it was, aside from a few fragments of land, as far as anyone knew, it could also have been an ocean of ice. So that would have been a, that would have been a great achievement as well to discover that. And so he figured um, that it was more important to go south it, through this lead, through this new avenue of water, even if it meant that the ship would uh, would be stuck fast. And he realized that even if they were stuck, then they would be coming home with an even more, if they came home at all. Uh, that was all, that was, it was a, a very, very dangerous move. But if they did come home, then they would, uh, they would come home with an even more valuable resource, which was a great story to tell. And in the, the uh, field of, of exploration, the way explorers made money was by by telling their story, by selling books about exploration. And people, the public at large, didn't necessarily care about a thorough scientific survey of a region as much as they cared about stories of survival. And so he knew that, uh, Dujarlash knew that if they were stuck fast, then they would become the first men to winter in the Antarctic. And that was worth the risk in itself. As well as his planning and the decisions that he made along the way, 
They were, suffice to say, rather ill-equipped for Antarctic exploration and, and did various yeah. things. So underprepared, various things go wrong. Tell us some of the things that they that they basically, ways in which they were ill-equipped, I guess. Well, as I mentioned, the only people who were supposed to spend the winter in the Antarctic were the four people in the landing party at, uh, in Victoria Land. And so they only had four uh, sets of proper winter clothes. So when, in, uh, when 18 men ended up being forced to winter, they didn't they didn't have the proper equipment for that and so at the end of the day it was that they didn't necessarily suffer from cold even though it dropped to to mine more than uh, or to less i should say than minus 40 degrees celsius uh, they were confined mostly to the ship and in the ship it was about 10 the temperature uh, was you know more or less around 10 degrees celsius but however being confined to the ship led to uh, some some pretty serious psychological consequences, especially as the sun went down. So they were stuck on this ship in an endless night. And as I said, it was a small ship. And so the, the, the seeing the same faces day after day, so eating the same inedible food prepared by an incompetent uh, cabin boy, well-meaning, but culinarily inept cabin boy, and paired with a feeling of despair, especially since none of them, aside from Dujarlash, had any intention of wintering there, uh, that led to a profound breakdown in morale and uh, some even more serious psychological consequences. Some, uh, a few of the men actually went insane, and one never recovered his reason. Yeah, in other ways in which they were ill-equipped was I, I mentioned the food. It's not a question of quantity so much as quality uh, that that posed a problem. It was uh, the fact that that um, even and even though the uh, the cans that Dujarlash had bought were of the of the highest quality he could find but even then the the uh, by the the standards of the 19th century they might have been good but uh, by, uh, according to the uh, the men who who ate it day after day there was a sameness to all of it and a lack of consistency to all of the food that they were eating and they became uh, inexplicably uh, disgusted by it that was also another huge blow to morale is that the food was all from a um, a, a very limited number of purveyors. And this is a, a little, I should say a little parenthesis here. This is something that NASA has learned. Uh, one of the lessons from the Belgica is that it's important to make sure that the purveyors of the food that you bring on far-flung exploration are different because no matter what the labels promise, no matter uh, how varied the meals they, that contained in, uh, in these cans or containers, if it's all from the same purveyor, it will end up tasting the same. And sameness is something that only reinforces monotony. And monotony is something that saps the joy out of life. And especially when it comes to meals, which are times that should be the, some, some of the, uh, the few occasions that one would look forward to in an endless night on a barren landscape, they became sources of dread. And so that also was another way in which uh, Dujolash couldn't have predicted this, but it, it, it was one of the ways in which the expedition was ill-equipped. You've already mentioned that uh, Frederick Cook... His reputation is is sort of later overshadowed, is later ruined by his later exploits. But you talk in the book about, you know, ways in which he plays a significant part in the survival yeah. of the men. So l- let's talk about Cook's part there. Sure. So what Cook's insight, he noticed that not only were the men get, uh, becoming disgusted with the food, but the food was also uh, leading to severe nutritional deficiencies. And he was a trained doctor. He had studied at NYU in Columbia in New York, and he recognized the the symptoms as those of scurvy, which was surprising because at that time, scurvy was considered more or less a thing of the past. 
a disease from the age of sale. As many of your uh, listeners may know, uh, in the 18th century, James Lind discovered that scurvy could be resolved with fresh fruit, specifically with lemons. And uh, that it became the, the practice of the Royal Navy to give lemons to, uh, to sailors. And over the course of the 19th century, lemons were replaced with limes, which were cheaper and, and uh, I guess, more accessible to the, the Royal Navy. And then, however, and limes were eventually replaced with lime juice. And for a long time, people didn't realize that this wasn't as effective as lemons uh, be- because the the advent of the steam engine made the ocean-going trips a lot shorter, short enough that the symptoms of, of scurvy didn't have time to manifest themselves. However, in, in a uh, polar expedition that is stuck in the ice uh, and, and uh, in, in which the, the ship has no access to uh, fresh food, th- those three months uh, went by and they uh, scurvy reared its head. And so Cook uh, was forced to figure out a solution to this, given that none of the known cures for scurvy were on board and that the bottled lime juice did not appear to be working because um, in the bottling process, uh, the the heat involved uh, breaks down the very delicate uh, molecule of of, um, ascorbic acid, also known as vitamin C. He had the great insight of thinking to his travels among the Inuit in uh, Greenland and, and realizing that the, despite not having ready access to fruits and vegetables, despite eating almost exclusively fresh game, the Inuit did not seem to suffer from scurvy. They had other health problems, but not scurvy. And so he insisted that the men abandon the canned food that they'd been eating in favor of fresh penguin meat, which was abundant and fresh seal meat as well. Um, however, the the it was the, the men were absolutely revolted. They tried the meat at one point and were absolutely revolted. He so he forced them to eat him eat the meat. And, and the, interestingly enough, the one man who um, not only ate but relished penguin meat was Roald Amundsen, who had a bit of a masochistic streak and uh, equated uh, suffering with accomplishment, which I think goes a long way to explaining why he was so successful as a polar explorer. But in any case. Having eaten the penguin meat, Amundsen saw his symptoms reverse themselves, and, and uh, as surely as water douses fire, the uh, the meat in uh, the, the the vitamin C in um, in fresh meat of most animals will will reverse the effects of scurvy. I say most animals because humans are are some of the very few who don't synthesize their own ascorbic acid. Just to finish it off, then I want to come right back to the beginning of the book, and there's a, a really touching prologue where we see Amundsen visiting Cook in jail, and they became they became firm friends on this trip, didn't they? Yeah, they really did, and that's that's one of the things that uh, also drew me to this story. This idea that uh, one of the most celebrated polar explorers in history, Roald Amundsen, should uh, have remained loyal to to the the great anti-hero of polar exploration not only remained loyal but hailed him as to quote him the greatest traveler i ever saw he called him a genius and he credited him credited him with uh, saving his life aboard the belgica which which he considered the most harrowing of his expeditions so the um, and in fact when when cook was in jail as you allude to the uh, amundsen was the only person to visit him and even as amundsen turned his back on every almost everybody who had ever supported him and um, had a long list of enemies. There was one man who was never on that list, and that's Frederick Cook. So that friendship, that bond for me was was particularly poignant. So I've been talking to Julian Sanctum. We've been talking about his book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night, 
which is out in the UK from WH Allen. Julian, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.